0: And today we're looking at what the Bible teaches about divorce. Next week we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about the issue of suicide. And two weeks from today we will conclude this series with a Q&A time. We've never done the Q&A time so we'll see how that goes. If you don't have any questions I'll be ready to just persecute you with some lesson. uh, If nobody has any questions but we will have that time if you want to take advantage of that. What does the Bible teach about divorce? Top of page one then. Marriage is as old as human civilization, and marital conflict almost as old. On the day Eve took the fruit and then gave it to Adam, marital conflict reared its ugly head. Adam played the blame game, telling God it was his wife's fault that he ate the fruit. It does not take long after the I do's for conflict to come. Unchecked and unresolved conflict will not take long to raise the D word, that is divorce. So at the very beginning of human history, God creates the institution of marriage. God gives away the first bride. The marital bliss of the end of Genesis chapter 2 gives way to the curse of Genesis chapter 3 and very quickly at that. And some of the things that you see in Genesis chapter 3... That distorted and harmed the relationship between the man and the woman are things that continue in relationships today because we are all children of our first parents and we inherit their sin nature and we bring some of those same kinds of attitudes and hearts into those, into our marriage relationships. So the blame game, of course, goes on today. Uh, If it wasn't for her, then I would be. If it wasn't for him, then I could. And in many people's minds, if it just wasn't for the failures, the, the problems, the limitations of my spouse, then I could be a godly person and I could be a happy person as well. And in addition, not only do those same kinds of attitudes that were evident in Genesis chapter 3, uh, are they still evident today, but also some of the, the roles that God assigned to men and women in the first man and woman, today we still have difficulty fulfilling those roles. Uh, If you were here in the first hour and in the message from Ephesians chapter 5, we saw that Ephesians chapter 5 says to wives in verse 22, submit to your husbands. It says to husbands in verse 25, love your wives. And if you're thinking about it, that should raise a bit of a question, uh, and that is, it says husbands love your wives, but it doesn't say at least in that passage wives love your husbands. So does this mean that wives are off the hook on loving their husbands? Well, in fact, in other passages in Titus uh, chapter uh, 2 for example, it does say that wives are to uh, love their husbands. In fact, uh, older women are to teach younger women to do that very thing, to love their husbands and to raise their to raise their children and how to be Keepers at home, uh, says Paul in that passage. So elsewhere, women are indeed told to love uh, their husbands. And in the first hour, I tried to make the point that even though the word submit is not used for men toward their husbands, toward their wives, that the concept of placing yourself under the needs of your wife is certainly something that the Bible teaches. I tried to show that from first Peter chapters two and three and also from Ephesians chapter 5. So, the truth is, both husbands and wives are to love each other, and both husbands and wives, in a sense, are to submit to each other. Wives submit to the loving leadership of their husbands, husbands submit themselves, place themselves under the needs of their wives. But if that's true, why, when Paul comes to this crucial passage in the book of Ephesians that's giving instructions for the various kinds of relationships that exist in society, starting in the, in the home, but then extending out into employer and employee with slaves and masters in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Why in that classic passage where he's dealing with the home and roles, does he only say wives submit and husbands love? And I think the reason for that is, is because the roles that were assigned Initially in Genesis chapter 2 were for the husbands to lovingly lead and for wives to help he made a helper for him to assist them in that god-given task of lovingly leading submit to the loving leadership of their husband but because of sin those will be the two things that both have such a hard time doing husbands are fine to lead it's the loving part that we forget it's to self-sacrificially lead for the sake of our wives, for the sake of our children, not to selfishly lead. Why? Because of sin. Wives have a hard time with this submission idea. And so that's why Paul explicitly calls it out, I believe, in Ephesians chapter 5. So God knows. And God has given us then in His Word instruction based upon His omniscience regarding our struggles, and gives us particular commands to address those particular struggles. But as those struggles take place in our role relationships, in our selfishness, in the title of one book that I have on my shelf on marriage, the title is this, When Sinners Say I Do. And two sinners come together in a relationship that's going to manifest itself in various ways that can, and unfortunately often does, lead to talk and even acting on divorce, Second paragraph, rampant divorce is a symptom of our culture's moral sickness. Nearly one out of every two marriages in the United States ends in divorce and children are involved more than half the time. So if you're contemplating a divorce and you have children, then you have lied to yourself this way. You're saying to yourself, first you're rationalizing why it's okay for you to get the divorce. It may be that you have biblical grounds. We'll talk about biblical grounds In the following pages. But if you have children, don't dismiss the harm that it does to children to have their parents separated from one another. And then the explanation that you have to give to the kids. And you can rationalize that, and people do it all the time who have determined, I want to get a divorce, and determined that it's good and godly for them to do this. And they say things like, you know, kids are resilient. Well, yeah, they are. And uh, in most cases, they'll live some cases, they don't, literally. I mean, kids are so harmed, their psyche is so harmed by the abandonment and why doesn't my dad and or mom love me anymore and why don't they And the security, the lack of security that that now represents for that young child's life. It's nothing other than a tragedy, and don't kid yourself. So if you're trying to play that rationalization and kids are resilient, that they'll be okay, They'll live, and God in his grace works in the lives of people, whatever their circumstances, thanks thanks be to God. But often he has to do that in spite of what we do, not because of what we do. No-fault divorce makes it easy to obtain, and in the last several years there have been over a million divorces in this country. Over the last 60 years, the divorce rate in our country has increased by 700%. But people who seriously practice a traditional religious faith, whether Christian or other, have a divorce rate that's markedly lower than the general population. The factor making the most difference is religious commitment and practice. What appears intuitive is, in fact, true. Couples who regularly practice Any combination of serious religious behaviors and attitudes, attend church nearly every week, read their Bibles and spiritual materials regularly, pray privately, and together generally take their faith seriously, living not as perfect disciples but serious disciples, they enjoy significantly lower divorce rates than mere church members, the general public, and unbelievers. One professor explains from his analysis of people who identify as Christians but rarely attend church, 60% of those have been divorced. Of those who attend church regularly, 38% have been divorced. That's still a very, that's a high number, nearly 40% of people who attend church regularly and, and are, claim to be Christian are still divorced. I would just add though, that's just attending church. And in my experience and in my conversations with other pastors over many years, their experiences as well, is that we observe that the very last thing to go in terms of spiritual disciplines for people is church attendance. Before people stopped attending church, they stopped doing other things. Because, see, church is the most visible. And so it takes a while for somebody to just stop doing that. But prior to that, they in all likelihood have already stopped praying regularly. They've already stopped uh, being in the Word of God on a regular basis. If you add to this that people attend church they're in God's word, they're praying, to put it another way, they're serious about their commitment to Christ, then the divorce rate, according to some people, is as low as 1% among those people. So I've tried to obtain exact figures on that, but intuitively, the spirit of God and commitment to Christ is bound to make a profound difference in whether or not people engage in Uh, pursuing this most sacred of institutions until the end. And so it stands to reason that it would be much lower than what the world has and much lower than what nominal Christianity has as well. Suffice it to say this. Some of you have heard that the divorce rate in the general population is about 50%. And for many years I heard it's the same in the Christian community. Anybody else ever heard that? That's not true. That is not true. And it is certainly not true among people who are committed to the Lord Jesus and pursuing a serious relationship with Him. This lesson will survey God's view of marriage and divorce and seek to identify whether there are ever grounds upon which a marriage can be dissolved. So, what causes divorce? While there are many things in a marriage that set the stage for conflict and divorce, there are relatively few root causes. In marital problems that precede divorce, there are two layers surface problems first of all so when people present what issues they have going on uh, a lack of communication performance based relationship performance based is similar to what i said in the first hour about the 50-50 approach to the marital relationship you do your half i'll do my half and then we'll uh, everything should work out but as i said in first hour Uh, how I evaluate whether or not you're doing your half or you're evaluating whether I'm adequately doing my half is usually skewed toward my favor. So invariably, I'm going to conclude you're not doing enough on your end and you're going to conclude the same thing when you get two sinful, selfish people together. That's not a proper approach to take. It's not 50-50, it's 100% on both sides. And both of you go all in. And you go all in whether or not the other party's going all in, as we outlined this morning. Top of page two, so-called irreconcilable differences. And I would just ask you to think about this biblically. <laughs> Is there such a thing, biblically, as irreconcilable that we, that, that we cannot forgive someone for something? Let's assume that the person confesses and repents and seeks forgiveness. Is there anything that the Bible teaches cannot be reconciled? The answer is, no. by the way, the right answer. That's no. There's nothing that the Bible teaches cannot be reconciled. Now, there might be things that people do that create a trauma on a person such that they are not able to get over it. That they're not able to get over it physically, mentally that it causes uh, those kinds of ongoing problems for them, but that's different than irreconcilable differences, that we have differences that, uh, that we simply can't uh, bring together by using biblical principles. There is no such thing. Finances is another one. But I say in the marriage ceremonies that uh, I perform, and I've said this, I think, in all of them, I go through this list and I say, you know, these are the causes that people give for divorce. Lack of communication, finances, lack of physical intimacy, those kinds of things. But I say, really, none of those are the real cause. The number one cause, I say, of divorce is marriage. I'm just profound that way, okay? But I actually am serious about it in terms of marriage And people's approach to marriage, the way they view marriage, what they think it is, how they enter into it. Folks' view of marriage profoundly affects their pursuit of marriage. And how they pursue marriage is going to have then a profound effect on whether or not that marriage flourishes, whether or not that marriage ultimately stays together. So those are more superficial surface causes for divorce Root causes, top of page two, selfishness. It's a demand to have one's own way rather than working together to build a relationship. A selfish spouse is demanding, even threatening. He or she will demonstrate little consideration for his or her her spouse. So this is the kind of person who in a marriage cannot differentiate between a desire and a demand. It's okay in any relationship to have any number of desires for the other party. And to ask that person if they are able and willing to fulfill those desires. I would like it if you did X. It would help me if you. Those are desires and you communicate those desires. But the selfish person, there's no difference between that, communicating a desire, and a demand. The demand is, you've got to do this. I'm not asking, I'm not preferring that you do this. I'm requiring that you do this. And how do you know that the thing has gone from a desire to a demand? Well, you'll see it in your reaction to it not happening. See, if it's a demand, now you're going to be angry. Now you're going to become bitter. Now you're going to retaliate in some way toward the person. This is going to contribute to the uh, decline of your relationship because you can't get over it. And the reason you can't get over it is because you're demanding things that, and I'm making the assumption here, these are things that the Bible doesn't require, one. But even if they are things that the Bible requires, you can't make the other person do anything. And so biblically, you have to deal then with your own relationship with God and how God's going to use you. To grow in that situation and use you in the life, Lord willing, of that person, even in their unwillingness, at least at this point, to do what God says. So selfishness. Desires become demands. That goes on over a long period of time, and you get couples who can't stand each other. Heaven forbid that there be couples in this room who name the name of Jesus who can't stand each other. But you see it, I see it, man, I, I go out to a restaurant and there's that couple that's, you know, pushing 70. And they're, they appear to have been together for a very long time, so long that they don't say a word to each other. I, I take that back. Um, the guy will say something like, pass the salt. And then she dutifully passes the salt. So he's got this angry tone, and this is the way these these people operate. What a miserable life. These are people who don't have a marriage. They have an existence. And there are lots of people out there with existences but not marriages. Lack of Christ-like love and grace, Ephesians 5, the passage that we saw in our first hour. Pictures marriage is an earthly image of the relationship between Christ and the believer. It sets the standard for love of the husband as the love that Christ has for his church. It sets the standard for a wife's submission as the submission that the church has to Christ. The image of his love for the church is directed to the man specifically. But as I said, Titus 2.4 teaches that women are supposed to love their husbands. It's hard to imagine that God intended a different kind of love for the wife than for the husband. Ephesians 4.32 talks about God's grace and the impact it should have on our relationships. To live in the love and grace of Christ has a dramatic impact on your marriage. In every case of marital conflict, one or both parties are not living in Christ-like love and grace. And then with both of those, the root of that; those two things are actually the third there, sin. That's the real root issue. Selfishness and lack of Christ-likeness are ultimately sin issues. When conflict arises, there's often sin involved. When divorce approaches... There's always sin involved. Now notice, there's always sin involved. By one or both parties. Now I'm not someone who subscribes to there's never an innocent party. There can be an innocent party. Someone can do things and so aggrieve the other party that the other party has tried and is trying. There may be innocent. Innocent doesn't mean perfect. Everybody's a sinner. But whenever there is a divorce, one or both parties has sinned in order to bring it to that point. That's for sure. This does not mean that all divorce is sin. It simply means that sin is involved in every divorce. So what does the Bible say about marriage and divorce? Well, first about marriage, marriage is for life. When God gave the first bride away, He said this is or Adam said when he received Eve, she is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. In the New Testament, Jesus said what God has joined together, let man not separate. So God's intention out and outside of sin, this would be the way it is. You would have one man and one woman for one lifetime. And that's still God's ideal, and only sin breaks that. But what are the exceptions? Bottom of page two, hardness of heart and abandonment. God's teaching about divorce began all the way back in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, in the section that the Bible calls the Torah, the Hebrew for law. Notice this key passage from the book of Deuteronomy. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds, now notice this uh, phrase here, he finds something indecent about her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he gives it to her and sends her from her house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. What is that? So I want you to notice here that there's only one command in this whole thing. And that is, this one law is that if a man divorces his his wife and then she is subsequently remarried but then divorced again, he can't have her again, is the idea. That's the one thing this is saying. All the rest of these are conditional clauses. You see, it starts out if a man marries a woman and then if he writes her a certificate of divorce and if he gives her, and if after, these are all just describing a set of circumstances. Nothing said here is saying this is what should happen. It's saying in the event that this does happen, and it was happening, because, as we'll see, of the hardness, the sinfulness of people's hearts, now God has to give laws about, all right, if you're going to, in your sinfulness and your hardness of heart, you're going to do this. You simply can't play, you know, one at a time for as long as you want, and then I'll have you back again when I feel like when I feel like doing that. And so God gave laws in his law to regulate the hardness of heart. By the time of Jesus, about 1400 years after Moses wrote this passage that we just read, it was common for Jewish men to put away their wives based on a loose, Interpretation of that phrase I pointed out to you earlier: something indecent. In fact, two rabbinical schools developed by Jesus' time. One taking a liberal view, one taking a conservative view. Rabbi Hillel and his followers taught that divorce was lawful for virtually any reason, including burning a meal. You burn the meal; that's something indecent. And so, I'm going to put, I'm going to put, put you away. So. And that was going on, and Moses recognized that was going on, and he says, if you play that game, if you do that, then here are the the restrictions that are going to be placed upon you. So that was the liberal interpretation. The followers of Rabbi Shammai believed that divorce could be legitimate only for sexual impurity. As was often the case in Jesus' earthly ministry, his opponents sought to trap him by forcing him to choose between these two opposing groups. So here's the passage in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. So this is what they're doing. They're trying to trap him. The Bible tells us that. They say, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So is Hallel right? Right. Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for anything he wants? And Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let not, let man not separate. Answer, no, Hillel's not right. It was never like that. Well, why then did Moses, now notice, command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now notice, Moses isn't commanding that this happen. Moses is saying this is happening. If this happens, all the if clauses that you see there, then these are the restrictions that are going to be placed upon the hardened sinner who's pursuing this. But they say, he commanded that you do this. Jesus says, notice Moses Permitted, Because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples have said, if that's the situation, it's better not to get married. If I got no escape clause, <laughs> I mean, that's in effect what they're saying. So Jesus gives a very tight view of, Divorce going all the way back to the beginning, one man, one woman, one lifetime that's God's design. Only because of the hardness of heart was anything else practiced. Moses didn't command, Moses permitted because of what was already happening. In fact, the Bible never commands divorce for personal reasons. Let me repeat the Bible never commands divorce. For personal reasons. Now here, Jesus says except for marital unfaithfulness. We're going to talk about that for a bit. But even there, Jesus is not commanding. Even in the case of adultery, he's not saying you have to. If someone commits adultery, you have to get a divorce. He's making, giving a permission to do that for good reasons that we'll talk about in a moment. But he's not commanding it. I know of couples where adultery has happened and they reconciled. And you may be thinking, I could never do that. Well, God's grace can do things you don't think you can do, one. Uh, But it's not required that it be reconciled. Jesus gives the exception for marital unfaithfulness, but it can be done. And God does not uh, ever command a divorce for personal reasons. Now, when some read that and then they hear someone like me say there are exceptions in which someone can get a divorce. They say, you know, that minimizes the sanctity of marriage. When you allow any exceptions, you're minimizing the sanctity of marriage. Well, one, the big issue isn't that. That That's an important issue. Practically, how does that play itself out? That's important. But the bigger issue, of course, we would all agree, I think, is what does God say about it? And God says here, except it be for marital unfaithfulness. So we've got to deal with that. That's one. But even on the practical question of does, uh, does recognizing these exceptions that do allow for divorce, does that somehow cheapen marriage? And my own view is no, it's actually the opposite. That, practically speaking, if you communicate to people, and I'm going to pick on men in particular, you communicate to men that you can commit adultery with impunity, that cheapens marriage. What was happening in the first part of your Bible in the Old Testament is what was cheapening marriage. Because you had guys treating women like chattel property and having them for a time and putting them away and then getting them back. No, I think it's much better, practically speaking, to let a young man know when you make this commitment, you're making it for the rest of your life with this one woman. And you violate that with another woman. And you run the risk of ending your marriage. You need to understand that. I tell the young men that I go through premarital counseling with that very thing. That's how sacred this is. You cannot violate this covenant. You cannot give yourself physically to another person. And if you do, you have violated the covenant of marriage. Now, okay. There's that. And then there's that this word, Greek word, translated marital unfaithfulness, is the Greek word pornea. And it means sexual sin. We get pornography from it. So as with all interpretation and application of the Bible, you have to first understand what it meant at the time it was given, and then you have to make application of it now 2,000 years later. You know, 2,000 years ago, there was no Internet. So there was not the ready accessibility of pornography. And if you wanted to commit sexual sin, you had to go out of your way to do it back in the day. If you wanted to look at pornography, you had to go to a seedy part of town. You had to put nose and sunglasses on, go into, you know, so nobody would recognize you. Go into the seedy part of town, go into this, you know, seedy place. Um, if you went into a party store or something, they had the, the dirty books, magazines behind the counter. You had to go to the counter and ask for it, look around to see who's around you. And now all you got to do is click a mouse. For free and you download all sorts of degraded stuff. Now is that is that committing adultery on your spouse? Hmm. I'm giving you my two cents. If a man or a woman, but if a married person commits themselves to pornography and they are unrepentant and they do not fight that with everything they have, then if that offended spouse seeks a divorce, I'm not bringing that person before the church for church discipline. Because it may be, it may be a valid application of porneia. Except it be for porneia, sexual sin. So I say that also to these young men. When they get married, I say, you can't be joined to somebody else physically and you can't feast on pornography. You've got one woman that you married and she's the object of your sexual desires for the rest of your life. So I say, men and women, I say, I tell that to the men. My wife meets with the gals, and she puts the fear of God into the gals. I put the fear of God into the guys, and we scare them, and they get married. That's how we do do it. So many of you know John MacArthur, and uh, John MacArthur tells the story of being uh, at a conference center years ago where he was speaking, and a guy named Bill Gothard, anybody know that name, Bill Gothard? Yikes. And uh, but Bill Gothard was there and the two of them were walking <clears throat> on the conference grounds. And Gothard uh, says, uh, so, John, you believe that uh, that there's uh, any exception where somebody can get a divorce? And MacArthur says, well, you know, yeah, Matthew 19, Jesus says, except it be for marital faithfulness. Yeah, there's an exception. There is one, Jesus says. And Gothard goes, well, I don't think there is. And he goes, what do you mean? He says, see those geese over there? see that fence that keeps them hemmed in? If you put a hole in that fence, you're going to just get one geese come out. You're going to have a bunch of geese come out. You allow an exception, you're going to have all kinds of people. And MacArthur says to him, uh, Hey Bill, what does Matthew 19 mean without any geese? (laughs) Forget the geese. Jesus says, except it be for marital unfaithfulness. There is an exception, at least one. And further, turn to the next page. There is abandonment and desertion. Abandonment or desertion. The New Testament has one other passage related directly to d- divorce. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is writing about marriage, divorce, remarriage, the whole chapter. If you look at the second paragraph, he says... If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. All right. So what is that? If you've got a mixed marriage of one person who's a Christian and one person who's not, and the person who's a non-Christian is willing to fulfill the requirements of the marriage covenant, that's the way I'm saying it. It says here, willing to live. I'm saying it this way for reasons I'll explain in a minute. Willing to fulfill the requirements of the marriage covenant. If you've got an unbeliever who's willing to do that, then a a believer cannot divorce them simply because they're an unbeliever. You stay in the marriage. And as a matter of fact, in staying in the marriage, that home with just one Christian in it, one Christian spouse, is sanctified. That is set apart. You've got an advantage in that home that most homes in the world don't have. You've got at least one Christian there then he goes on to say and not only that but if you have if they have children and you've got one believing parent those children doesn't mean they're saved when it says they're holy they're set apart that home has advantages that other homes don't have because there's at least one christian in that home and paul is saying that's a blessed thing keep it together and Lord willing, that believing wife will win over that unbelieving husband or vice versa. But it's a, it's a, it's a valuable thing to have at least one believing spouse in a home. Keep it together if the other party is willing to fulfill the covenant of marriage. And if that's the case, then you stay. But look at the next paragraph. If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. So if they don't want to do that, if they don't want to fulfill the covenant of marriage, then you're not under obligation to stay. You're not bound. It's another exception. Now, I keep saying, are they willing to fulfill the covenant of marriage? Why am I saying that? Um, Here's why. If you were with us in the first hour, we looked at Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. Exodus 21, 10 and 11. And I put up on the screen that the law of God gave three things that a husband was to give his wife in marriage as part of the covenant. And if he doesn't, she can leave. And those were... Safety, food, and uh, physical intimacy. Now, if he doesn't do that, he's not fulfilling the covenant and you you can leave. Now, I believe that Paul is, and many believe that Paul is, basing what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 on that very thing. So, it would apply... And I'm giving you my two cents here. I've discussed this with our leadership team as well. But here's my two cents on it. What if somebody, you have an unbeliever in a home, and he beats his wife? So what do you do? It's not adultery, it's not sexual sin. And he says, no, I want to stay. Yeah, I'm willing to live with this. Well, what? And I'll tell you what. Many pastors have said, you got to stay. Women have been killed. I mean, literally been murdered. Because they stayed in a physically abusive relationship. A woman comes to me and says, I'm being physically abused. My first advice to her is you get out of the home right now. Further, we'll help you get out of the home. We'll help you find a place to stay. We'll get some of our men from our church to help you move your stuff out in case your crumb of a husband shows up because he's a coward. And I'm saying that to anybody in this room who lays a hand on a woman you're a coward. And he's not going to mess with some other guys. He's happy to mess with you. Because you're vulnerable. So you get out, we'll help you get out. And you don't have to stay in that. And further, you don't have to stay in that marriage. Because he's violating the covenant of marriage. Now we would love to see him come to Christ. We would love to see it get right. We would love to see the marriage come together. We'll try all of that, of course. Divorce is never a first resort. It is a very last resort after painstaking attempts. But if somebody is being abused, then that abuse is violating the covenant of marriage in the spirit of Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. That's my understanding. And just like if someone divorced a spouse who is immersed in pornography, I would not advocate taking church discipline against that person. I would not advocate doing that in this case either because I don't believe they violated scripture and certainly not clearly so. So we've got five minutes left. The rest of the notes are just some principles to draw out of this. But I just want to hit this as hard as I can one last time. If you're in an abusive relationship, get out. If you're an abuser, get right. Now you can get right, you can get right with your God, you can repent of that, you can confess that, and I'm urging you to do that. We're going to have a time of prayer in five minutes when we finish here. And when we do that, I urge you to cast yourself before your Creator and before the Savior who died on the cross for your sins. And you recognize that you've been a coward. I'm I'm just trying to say that to be mean. I'm just trying to say that's the reality. You're harming a vulnerable person. You're harming, if there are children involved, you are harming them. Perhaps you've been harmed in your past and you're doing it to other people. I hate that it was done to you, but you cannot do that to anyone. It's sin. It's heinous sin. And you need to confess it before God. Here's the great news. Jesus died for your sin of abuse. And his blood covers your sin, whatever it is. And so you ask him to forgive you, to be your savior, to cover all your sin, past, present, and future, and you give your life to him. We'll give you opportunity to do that in a moment. Bottom of page four. How can it be avoided? Recognizes that God's design is one man with one moment for one life. That this is a covenant with your spouse and God. Top of page five, you live for Christ every day and demonstrate his grace in the give and take of marriage. Be willing to accept suffering as part of God's work in your life. God has not gone on vacation when things are hard. So recognize that God will work in you and through you. Be willing to work hard at your marriage, guard it with fierceness, learn to ask forgiveness and learn to grant forgiveness as well top of page six. All right. We have a, I'm told, a parent meeting for the parents of those teens who are leaving on Sunday, one week from today, to go to Florida to help with a vacation Bible school at Pastor Matt Owens Church, uh, community Bible church in Orange Park, Florida. So many of you met Pastor Matt when he was here and preached two weeks ago. Uh, so our teenagers, uh, I think 15 of them. And four or five adults are going to Florida. They're leaving next week. They'll be there all next week uh, doing a vacation Bible school. So if you think of it, pray for them. But parents of those 15 teenagers, there's a meeting about that. It's in the teen area at the south end of the building. As soon as we're done here, Pastor Larry will be leading that. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what it is we set aside to remember, namely Father's Day. And the privilege and the awesome responsibility and daunting responsibility of being fathers. But Lord, we thank you for granting us this grace of children and entrusting them to our care on your behalf. Help us, Lord, to fulfill it in the way that you have given us in Scripture and for the purposes that you have given in Scripture, namely your name and your glory. Lord, we thank you for this time to look at your word about what you teach about the sacredness of marriage and that it is to be one man and one woman for one lifetime. And yet because of the hardness of heart, because of sin in our hearts, the marriage covenant is sometimes broken through sexual sin. It is sometimes broken uh, through desertion. It is sometimes broken because of abuse. Oh, Lord, we ask you to work in the hearts of those who are in those situations. For those who are pursuing sexual sin, Lord, help them to see how heinous it is before you and to repent of that and repair to the cross of Jesus for forgiveness. We thank you that you invite us and bid us to come when we've sinned and even sinned in grievous ways. Lord, for those uh, who are thinking about leaving, Cause them to reconsider. Help them to think about you first and foremost. And that marriage is from you. And that when we damage marriage, we damage your reputation. And then there are others involved on a horizontal level. There's the the spouse that we're leaving. If there are children, they will be harmed. And so, Lord, re- move in their hearts so they reverse course. And then come to you. That they come to you for you to change them. And change their home. And reestablish it on solid principles. And. And, and, and this relationship is pursued by the power of your spirit. And then Lord, for any who are being harmed, being abused, grant them the way, the courage to leave. Grant them safety. Grant us, we ask you, the ability to help any in that situation and help them in an effective way. And then Lord, I pray for any who would deign to lay their hand on one who is vulnerable. Whether a husband to a wife, a parent to a child, in an angry way, and in a an harmful way. Oh, Lord, protect those who are vulnerable, we ask you. You're the champion of the vulnerable and the weak. So we ask you to protect. Lord, we ask you to move upon the heart of the abuser, draw them out of their self-centeredness and to the cross of Jesus, Help them to see that all of our sin, and certainly including this sin, sent God the Son to the cross to die to pay the penalty for our sin. There is a penalty to be paid for sin. We thank you that the Lord Jesus paid it in full. But if we do not avail ourselves of the payment that he has made for our sin, then we will pay for it ourselves forever in hell. And in the meantime, there are the practical consequences of that sin in the lives of all that are touched by it. So, Lord, we ask you to do this. We ask you in your mercy to touch hearts, repair marriages, restore homes. We'll give you the praise for all that you do. Go with us now, we ask you. Grant us safety this week. Grant us opportunity to represent you accurately in the circles of responsibility that you've assigned to us and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.